Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to many bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Joining us today is Dr. Kay Havens. She's the Director of Plant Science and Conservation for the Chicago Botanic Garden, and she is here to talk to us about a critically endangered thistle called Pitcher's Thistle, Circium pitcheri. It's a wonderful species that grows on sand dunes around a handful of the Great Lakes here in North America. Now, this plant has a lot of stories to tell. There are stories of habitat loss and biocontrols gone bad, but there's also stories of hope in here, and Dr. Havens is going to tell us all about that. So I don't want to steal any more of her thunder. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Havens. I hope you enjoy. Right, Dr. Kay Havens, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Welcome. But before we jump in, how about we introduce yourself? Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So um, my name's Kay Havens, and I have been working at the Chicago Botanic Garden for 25 years. Mm. I'm the senior director of ecology and conservation. Uh, prior to that, I worked at Missouri Botanical Garden for a few years as a oh. conservation biologist. And before that, I was in graduate school. So, <laughs> And we all know I've, how that uh, goes. I've been doing this for a very long time. <laughs> That's excellent. Uh, and you've been at some of my favorite institutions in North America. So that's a real pat on the back. You've, you've brought your talents to really great places doing great work. Yeah. I, uh, you know, like I tell my friends, I wouldn't be here for 25 years if I didn't love what I was doing. And it, it's really been a, a fun ride at the garden. That's awesome. Um, building the conservation program there. That's a beautiful thing. And I find that like people working in conservations, uh, conservation, garden work, that sort of stuff. That's kind of the theme is that like you're, you're among the, the fortunate people that don't hate what they do every day. <laughs> <laughs> I consider myself really lucky to be challenged and to love what I do. And um, I mean, I when the pandemic started, I was so sad that I couldn't go into work no. and <laughs> see my friends. I still work from home, but it wasn't quite the same. Right, right. Well, don't discredit all the hard work that took to get you to this point. But that brings up a really interesting idea of where did the whole plant conservation bent of your career really begin? I mean, is this something you were passionate about growing up or something you kind of discovered through education? You know, I always loved plants. And I think you'll probably hear that from most of us in the biz. <laughs> always thought plants were cool, loved to grow them. And my graduate work, my master's was in plant physiology. And <laughs> then I went into plant reproductive ecology for my PhD. And I just happened to work on a threatened species. We hmm. had a large greenhouse colony of it at Indiana University, where I did my PhD. Um, it was Enothera organensis, or the Oregon Mountain Evening Primrose. Nice. And I got done with five years of work on this species, and I 
knew it better than just about anyone in the world. And I realized I'd done nothing to help conserve it. (laughs) And that was kind of the uh, switching point for me to really want to work in an applied setting rather than academia. And so that's why I pursued botanic garden work and um, working in seed and plant conservation. Wow, that's fantastic. But thinking about what it takes to do plant conservation, I mean, the reproductive side of things is pretty vital because otherwise you're just planting, you know, nice gardens. They could be nice gardens full of rare stuff, but if they can't make more of those plants, what do you really have? Right. So the training was not a waste. I certainly (laughs) use, use those skills all the time. And my most recent graduate student actually worked on Enothera organensis again. So I got to go back to it 30 years after my dissertation and uh, meet an old friend, which was really nice. Oh, that's rad. Has much changed with the species since that time? I mean, new questions, obviously. Yeah, new questions. Um, We were studying it because we wanted to know about changes that happen during long-term ex situ conservation. And Mm. this is a plant that there's been a collection at Indiana University since the 1940s. Oh, whoa. And... So not managed necessarily for conservation, managed to maintain a big genetically diverse research huh. collection. Uh, but we could ask a lot of those same questions using plants from uh, the Indiana University greenhouse. And so, yeah, my most recent student looked at how does floral morphology change and other things related to reproduction um, with years and years, generations um, in XC2 cultivation, we, we hypothesized that without uh, a moth pollinating, we might see changes in floral morphology and in nectar content, hmm. um, nectar quality. And indeed, she did find some of those oh. things, which is a bit of a cautionary tale for those of us who engage in XC2 conservation all the time. We want to make sure that um, we're not unconsciously changing plants in a way that will make them less successful when they go back out in the wild. Wow. Huh. <laughs> oh, man, that, that gets the brain cells firing in, a, in an <laughs> interesting way. I mean, that is what essentially you just outlined there is, are we unintentionally doing artificial selection on a species that's, you know, maybe like you said, not in the context of like a conservation collection, but maintaining a collection for long term? That's <laughs> it's kind of alarming, but again, a cautionary tale that is worth, yeah. worth telling uh, many times over, I'm sure. Yeah, well, we'll try to tell it soon. We're working on the okay. paper. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. I understand how that goes. But I, I mean, yeah. a great case study for, you know, these working groups, these these organizations that are getting together more and more, luckily trying to collaborate on these sorts of things. Another layer of things to think about, um, you mm-hmm. know, whether you can really <laughs> do something about it is is a different story. But um, I mean, this is really cool, though, because this is where theory meets the application. And you right. kind of hinted at that was the direction you wanted to go. But unfortunately, in the world, the real world, uh, that doesn't happen all the time. You don't have a lot of theory talking to application and vice versa. Sometimes, at least from my academic experience, there are almost two camps that purposefully don't talk to each other. Yeah, that's something we've been working on really intently lately mm. is how do we bridge that gap? between research and practice. And um, we've started a synthesis center at the Botanic Garden called ESCOR, Synthesis Center for Conservation and Restoration. Nice. Um, We're doing our first project right now, but I think we're the only one, only synthesis center in the world that has an explicit 
goal of bringing together research and practice. And so every team we put together is, you know, part science geeks and part on the ground land managers, restoration practitioners, um, because we really want the knowledge we generate, the things we answer to be applicable and to be taken and used as quickly as possible. So that kind of gets to the core of what I wanted to ask you next is this idea of where those two camps ideally should meet, because it's easy to think that scientists are doing the science and and then anyone can grab it and use it. But I think the state of at least our country uh, has proven that people aren't really readily uh, digesting science and using it in any practical way in their day to day lives. Uh So for someone that's kind of experienced both worlds and is really, really in depth into sort of the, uh, the, the applied side of this. I mean, what, what do you, and and obviously this is a huge unanswerable (laughs) question in so many ways and I apologize, but like, what do you see kind of lacking in this idea of like what scientists are doing and then how we can actually use the science to do say plant conservation? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to step out of the ivory tower first. (laughs) Yes. I think we have to, you know, get out in the real world, um, out on the landscape, meet with folks that are managing and monitoring plant populations every day. And it's a fallacy to think that they're not doing science. They are. Mm -hmm. Um, They may not be doing the same kind of science we do back in the lab, but they know those populations and they know the things that aren't working better than anyone. And so it really has to be a partnership where we ask questions together, we design experiments that will hopefully answer some of those questions, and then um, we get that information to them as quickly as possible. So one thing I have all my graduate students do is is write an abstract for land managers. Nice. So what, what does your work mean for the real world, and how can it be applied? That's Awesome. I can't thank you enough for just that exercise, but let alone, uh, you know, putting this stuff into context that's meaningful because people are doing amazing science every day, but the amount that it is, uh, you know, someone can grab it and use it is a totally different story. And you see sort of this idea in the bigger literature, especially the theoretical literature. Like I come from a trait-based background in ecology and people pay lip service to this idea that it'll help plant conservation. And it's, you, you repeat it, even myself have repeated it time yeah. and time again. And then you think about like, how? Um, yeah. Good question. <laughs> really? Yeah. I'll, I'll come back to you in another five to 10 years when I have three more PhDs <laughs> worked out, you know, it's, yeah. it's, uh-huh. it's, but it's refreshing to hear that like, okay, there is ways we can do this in a, in a meaningful sense to do good science, but also make it applicable. And it, it really does come down to almost the language and, and how, you have to talk to both camps to be able to write the stuff that they can then use it. So you have to go Uh out there and say like, what do you need? How do we get this to you? Absolutely. It's a partnership from start to finish. That's so refreshing to hear. And I (laughs) I hope people take this model and run with it. (laughs) You know, don't steal your ideas, but also people should be doing this a lot. Oh, Steal them. It's a big world. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of plants that need help. So yeah. Yeah. And that's the other side of it too, is, is sometimes you can feel almost paralyzed with the need for more data. Well, we don't know. We can't say with any sort of confidence, you know, if you get an R squared of 30%, you're like, Oh my God, we have a law, (laughs) (laughs) but that's just, it is, is if we wait, for more data, if we wait for the perfect statistical design, um, we're going to lose a ton of species waiting, right? 
Yeah, indeed. The environment is changing every day. And, you know, I've worked for a very long time um, with a plant called Pitcher's Thistles, Circeum Pitcheri. And we've been monitoring it, myself and my colleague, at a couple of sites in Wisconsin for about 10 years. And we collaborate with other colleagues who've been monitoring it closer to 25 years. Hmm. There's probably not an endangered plant in the world that people know more about than Pitcher's Thistle. You know, we have this incredible long-term demography data set. We've done genetic work on it. We've studied its pollinator network. Uh, We know all about it, but it's still going extinct. And, you know, the things that might uh, move the needle are controlling some of the threats that um, it's facing that are imminent. And so its biggest threat are biocontrol weevils that have been introduced to control weedy thistles. And they've decided they love pitcher's thistle and they're destroying the seed heads. And so until we can control that, it doesn't matter that we have nearly 30 years of data. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Case in point and then some there. And (laughs) I mean, the title of this episode is probably going to give it away anyway, but the reason we connected was because of your work on pitcher's thistle. I'll never forget the first time I encountered the species. I hadn't really had a concept that A, thistles were native, B, that they could be endangered um, until I saw one on a dune and I just said, that's different and weird. And I've only seen a couple of them that's, you know, keys, whatever. I went through this like amazing uh, rabbit hole, (laughs) so to speak, and and realized, oh my God, that was a very special encounter. So tell us a little bit about this species. Say, where is it from? And how does it differ from the highly invasive, very annoying, and often painful thistles that most people are listening are going to encounter in their daily lives? Right. There's a, a quotation. I think it's Willa Cather that anybody can love a mountain, but it takes soul to love a prairie. And I kind of think <laughs> the same thing about a thistle. You know, anybody can love an orchid, but it takes soul to love a thistle. Um, it is an amazing plant. It um, only grows on the dunes around Lake Michigan and a few sites up on Lake Superior and Lake Huron. So Western Great Lakes, sand dunes, you can imagine that due to shoreline development and recreation, um, it's been heavily impacted over the years and climate changes having an effect in their populations that are highly inbred and Um, We're monitoring demographically about 10 different populations. They're all declining. Um, You know, it's kind of a a sad state. And then comes the nail in the coffin, these biocontrol weevils. There's three different ones. Um, One was deliberately introduced to control thistles. The other two were inventive in the U.S. They showed up on their own, but then they were promoted and spread around to control weedy thistles. And when you think about how our weedy thistles reproduce, a lot of it is vegetative reproduction. You have one and then pretty soon, like in my front garden, you've got a hundred because they just send out these runners and they spread all over the place. Pitcher's thistle doesn't send out any runners. Reproduces entirely by seed. No. It's monocarpic, so it lives six or eight years, flowers and dies. And so if something eats those seeds, there's nothing else, um, no other way for that plant to reproduce. And so the irony of this is 
these biocontrol weevils are really effective at driving pitcher's thistle to extinction, and yet they're not really knocking back the, the target species. So it's, you know, a sad tale yeah. of biocontrol gone wrong, and it is, you know, held up frequently as an example of that. So, yeah, That's... cautionary tale. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's tough because you do see applications for biocontrols if planned, if done properly, could have, you know, it's not this black and white issue. Yeah. But here you have a species whose life history characteristics are just really working against it in this context. I mean, if it could only throw out some rhizomes, there might be (laughs) a little bit thicker of a silver lining here. (laughs) Exactly. But it doesn't. And so, you know, I, I talk to people about pitcher's thistle a lot and I would often hear, well, you know, it's one plant, it's a thistle, does it matter? Oh God. And so we, we had this feeling that it does matter. I mean, one, it matters because it's a species and it has a right to exist, but two, it's a really important pollinator plant. Hmm. And so we've been doing research on pollinator networks and we've studied the sand dunes and the adjacent um, woodlands. And we've looked at what pollinators visit pitcher thistle and all the other flowering plants that are present. And there aren't a ton of them. If you think about sand dunes, yeah. there's some beach grass and not a whole lot Kind else. of sparse. <laughs> kind of sparse. And so maybe it's not a surprise, but this species is the most important species to maintain pollinator populations in a dune community. Wow. Uh, it attracts far more pollinators. We've documented over 50 different species of primarily bees, um, elected bees and bumblebees, but also flies, butterflies, monarchs use it. Um, seen rusty patched bumblebee oh. on it. So, <laughs> oh boy. So, you know, it's really important. And if you lose it, there's not much else out on the dunes to support all these insects. And so you begin to worry about a cascade of extinction if if this plant goes extinct. That is alarming, but it's also a really good reminder that abundance doesn't equal importance. And I mean, there's already thistle, if you're just base level understanding of what plants are, thistle puts up some red flags, but they're not all the same. <laughs> and right. and this is a really interesting example of how sometimes the rarer species on the landscape can have disproportionate impacts on the ecology. Now, that's not to say I, I personally do not know how abundant it once was. It might have been a species that was far more abundant and therefore even more impactful on the local mm-hmm. ecology. But regardless, the studies that are done today are done on a mere shadow of this, this plant's mm-hmm. former glory. Right. And to think about the consequences of losing it and what that might do to dune communities around all the Western Great Lakes is is pretty sobering. One of the things I have a current grad student, Dan Sandish, who's working right now at the same site that we did a pollinator network study in 2016. And since then, a number of invasive plants have been removed. And so we had things out on the dunes that were invaders, um, but do have floral resources, things like spotted knapweed and um, soapboard or bouncing bet, Hmm. um, acetum, uh, hypericum. And so we were wondering, you know, 
invasive species control is kind of the first step in restoration, but what does that do to the pollinator network, particularly at a site that doesn't have a lot of hmm. flowering resources? That's a great question. And um, what Dan is finding is it does destabilize the network a bit. Pitcher's thistle is still the most important plant out there, but it reminds us that as we're removing invaders, some of those invaders may have an ecological role and we need to replace them with native species that right, fill right. that niche. So we did a, a big restoration this summer at the site, <laughs> planted out a whole bunch of native plants that bloom when those invaders bloomed. And hopefully we'll, uh, next summer, look at the network again <laughs> and hope that we find it a bit more stable. Yeah, that's, I mean, these are kind of tough pills for, for people on both sides of the camp to swallow. I mean, yeah. you're getting a disproportionate effect from a rare species, but then also indicating that Ooh, some of these non-natives we don't like might have an ecological role to play, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. But going back to what we talked about earlier, this idea of, of restoration can generate data. It can generate mm -hmm. these hypotheses and you can be getting on-the-ground work done in the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a really great example of, okay, when mm -hmm. you're doing removals, it's not enough just to remove them. These need sort of a replacement uh, niche space, I guess, would be one right. way to put it, uh, to, mm -hmm. to really kind of maintain this habitat as something functioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've been working with Door County Land Trust on this project. Nice. There's been a a great partner and they've been really open to having us do our studies and help with the restoration. So we, we grew up a whole bunch of plugs at the Botanic Garden this hmm. year and got them out on the dunes and hopefully the winter will be kind to them and they'll come through and we'll <laughs> see lots of lovely flowering natives next year. I'm not a superstitious man, but my fingers are <laughs> crossed for you yes. in that <laughs> Thank regard. You. Yeah. Uh, so I keep kind of coming back to like, why is this plant so weird in my head? And, and, you know, the, given what you said about it being so well studied, I look at even some of the other native thistles that I've gotten to know over the years and they seem to be doing pretty darn well. So is it related? Like, is it one of those weird ones that its closest relatives are actually on another continent and we've just got a weird representative over here? Like, how does it fit in ecologically that it is just so different and difficult? Um, it, it seems to be closely related to some other native thistles in the Midwest. Hmm. And I, I don't think that, you know, there's something weird about it. Uh, <laughs> it thrives in a habitat that's really volatile yeah. and desirable, you know, to put your <laughs> yeah. beach house on. And so those are two strikes. But we got a little bit of a hint of just how volatile the habitat is the last two years. You know, the Lake Michigan level was 35 inches or so above normal. <laughs> and many populations were just wiped out. They were underwater. Oh, dang. Um, and others, as the foredune went underwater, you saw how volatile the dunes were. They just moved around and like crazy. Yeah. And sites that, you know, I spend every summer at and think I know well, they just didn't look like they used to look. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's hard on a plant. Yeah. Um, all that sand movement. So we're hoping that um, as the lake levels recede, that things will become a little more stable. And it is a plant that, that thrives on disturbance. So should come back um, as long as there's mm. enough flowering individuals to put <laughs> seed down. That right. 
Yeah, it's a conundrum, and it's a tough one to communicate because you hear disturbance loving, you're like, well, Jesus should be loving what we're doing. Yeah. But when you think of the habitat, like you said, these places they're living, it's one thing to have these disturbances and have places they can move or other populations, metapopulations to kind of back up and bolster what, what the overall population is doing. But, you know, I think of like places like Indiana dunes, which, you know, I am a great lakes kid. I grew up on the great lakes and it took till my late twenties before I actually saw what a natural great lake shoreline could look like. And, mm-hmm. But then you see that and you get up on a high enough elevation, you look over and you're like, okay, that's all development over there. And that's all industrial plants over there. Like they are right. few and far between. And so when you get these dramatic events that wipe out a population that could be really one of two or only a handful of populations and they don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. Yeah. And if there, there aren't enough hanging on to fill that need to disperse seed into those newly disturbed areas, then and you really get in trouble. Yeah. And, you know, I think places like Indiana Dunes have done great to kind of concentrate the impact and, and give people options when it comes to walking paths, for instance. Mm-hmm. But you get into some of these unregulated areas, especially in areas where it's mostly private shoreline and all mm-hmm. bets are off. And, you know, I've seen aerial footage of just dunes ravaged by people just walking on them. Yeah. And, and that's um, less of a disturbance than dune buggies. <laughs> they <laughs> see a lot of oh, too. <laughs> ATVs. Yeah. I'm not a ban everything kind of person, but ATVs (laughs) really make me mad. Yeah. Recreation can have a pretty serious impact uh, because unless you're someone, you know, like us who says, oh, that's a weird plant. I've never seen that before. Let me key it out. Right. You don't think about what you're stepping on. And and if you do, you say, oh, it's a thistle and (laughs) no big deal. Whoops. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Even if it's a whoops. Ah, oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, our, our mistreatment of shorelines is you could have a whole podcast devoted to just those conversations, but it really shows with species like this. And it, it, it shows because shorelines, you know, for as tough as they are, there are a lot of cosmopolitan species that enjoy them, but there are some very specific ones that only can yeah. live there. Yep. Oof. True. So in thinking about these weevils in the context of, you know, trying to save the species from the brink of extinction, obviously (laughs) more work needed, but what can you do in a situation like that? It's like you bring in one organism sometimes unintentionally and it controls or at least jumps onto these others, which I'm sure is keeping their populations numbers very high and healthy. Uh, yes. What what can you do? I mean, can you, is it as much as like putting a bag over every pollinated flower once the bees have had their chance or what? Well, the problem is the weevils lay their eggs before the head opens. No. <laughs> yeah. So bagging them doesn't work. We've thought about that. Damn. Um, there aren't a lot of pesticides that you can or even would want to use near water on a on a sand dune so that's kind of out we're thinking about pheromone traps as Mm. a possible solution At, at first we were hoping that there were a lot of populations that weren't impacted by weevils so a couple of years ago we did a round the lake survey of as many populations as we could get to and Unfortunately, there were weevils at most of them. So while densities of the weevils varied, there are very few areas where they haven't made their way into. So that leaves us with some sort of pheromone or chemical trap, maybe. That's a lot of money to develop. (laughs) 
or biocontrols um, for the biocontrol. No. Yeah. You know, this isn't an agricultural species. Yeah. So, you know, if it were cotton heads being attacked by weevils, people care about that, but this plant less so. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And you know, you get the sense that I hate when people kind of throw the argument out, well, we're always going to have to be involved then. Well, you know, humans have always kind of been involved in nature. Like uh-huh. we're part of this and we've been altering the landscape since our species evolved. But at the same time, yeah. you hear things like that. And then the monetary economic side of it kicks in and uh-huh. even the most dedicated donor is going to want to pull out at some point here. Uh, that's, it's, that's very frustrating. And, and I'm, I'm hoping you know, the, the odds of pheromone trapping at least have some potential here. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise it's a, you know, you don't want to reintroduce a rare plant until the threats have been controlled. And so even though we have a lot of seed in the seed bank, it's not something we're going to put out and waste if it's just going to get attacked by these weevils again. So it may be one of those species that we just hold on to in the seed bank for a very long time and grow out in controlled conditions to regenerate seed and hope that maybe someday we have something to, to deal with the weevils. Yeah. It's, it's another thing to consider in these, these conservation efforts is sometimes it's really good optics, good press to do these reintroductions. But if you have not solved the underlying issue, you're just creating a sink where you're just throwing more things to die, uh, not solving the issue. But you know, thinking about in the context of seed banking or even ex situ collections, I mean, is there is this a plant that lends well to ex situ conservation, say growing it in a sandbox or something offsite? We, we do grow it in a sandbox. Okay, cool. <laughs> Not too <laughs> off the mark there. Yeah. Um, and it grows really well for oh, us. So we okay. can, you know, we use, use it mostly for research purposes, but we can also regenerate seed for the seed bank. Good. And we believe it's probably fairly long lived in the seed bank. They have orthodox seeds that awesome. y- you can dry down and freeze. And um, so there's, you know, hope there <laughs> that at least uh, we can keep it on the planet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we there you go. <laughs> may not be able to keep it where it belongs, at least for the short term, but um, maybe someday. Right, right. And that's uh, that's good to know that the species won't go completely extinct. Uh, in the near future, and that seed banking is a viable option because having worked with a few recalcitrant species, ooh, boy, yeah. is that a struggle. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah. Um, Don't even get me started on if they're able to hybridize, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, oaks, yeah. for yeah, example. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, I hope you didn't have anything in that group and <laughs> stones yeah. throw away. Um, but yeah, I mean, thinking about that, is is exciting but it also offers this idea that you can't do this without solving these underlying issues and it kind of comes back to this idea of sort of a landscape manager's perspective on here Mm -hmm. and thinking about when people get up in arms like you're spraying herbicide or you're doing this Mm -hmm. like i understand that like the the Mm -hmm. wanton use of these tools to restore landscapes Mm -hmm. can be detrimental if not done correctly but Mm -hmm. you know you do all this work you clear up say one dune site and you reintroduce it, what happens when there's, you know, thousands of bull thistle just over the Uh fence? I mean, if you don't solve that issue, you've got a reservoir for the beetles. You've got another species that can come in and crowd it out. It just goes to show you that like, you got to kind of attack things, not only from an individual species, but this holistic sort of ecosystem perspective as well, which is why invasive species control is such an important issue to tackle. 
It absolutely is. And in some cases, biocontrols may be the answer, probably not for thistles in the United States. <laughs> you know, when like you it. have closely related species to the target, most insects are not that specific that they won't in times of need go to another host right right and it's like when people talk about deer resistant shrubs i'm like don't put anything past a deer that's hungry i mean everything's exactly. on the table at that point <laughs> and then that's a good point too is going back to what we talked about earlier with waiting for more data waiting till we have sort of a precise answer to give it's biology it's ecology these are by nature very messy giant gray areas that mm-hmm. kind of need nuance. And and unfortunately, nuance is not what we as a people are dealing in nowadays. Right. Very true. Yeah. And so from sort of the other side of things here with, with just communicating this issue and getting people interested, because you can't do the work that you do without people giving some funding or, or some mm-hmm. thought to maybe put aside a chunk of land. It, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's economics at the end of the day to be mm-hmm. cynical at its lowest <laughs> level. <laughs> How do you sell a species like Pitcher's thistle to the public? I mean, have you thought about sort of promotional campaigns or the, the way we talk about a species like a thistle? I mean, I understand why I love it and why it needs to be protected. It's got these intrinsic values that you talked about earlier. But how do you tell the average person that isn't even listening to this podcast uh-huh. that this plant matters? One of the things we use in Door County, which I don't know if you've been, but it's a mm-hmm. uh, a lot of orchards there, mm. cherry and apple orchards, they care about pollinators. Yes. And so if you can talk about this plant being really important for pollinators and even the keystone species on the dunes hmm. for supporting and helping pollinators, that's something that catches their ear. We work a lot with the, the neighbors at this site, the private homeowners, and most of them are thrilled to find out that they have a rare species growing on their land. And they're happy to have you come and monitor it. And they come over to the land trust site where we work and hear what we're doing and look at, uh, you know, what invaders are threatening it and how do we get rid of those? And they've been very open to having Phragmites control done on their land. they want to learn about the weevil and watch for it. So I have to say that in our little microsite <laughs> where we work, <laughs> it hasn't been hard. Um, it's a harder sell, I think, more broadly, people that don't care about pollinators. It, to them, uh, a lot of people say, well, just another thistle. There are a lot of thistles. Why do you care? They're not that important. But it's hard to argue with those folks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, at some point, you just have to realize you're just never going to get through to everyone, I guess. Right. Know? And that's an important thing to realize is you have to get outside of your camp. You have to get out of people that talk and think and act just like you. But you also have to realize there's people that are just a waste of time. But in my experience in doing this for as long as I have and talking to just untold numbers of people from vastly different backgrounds and interest levels is most people, like you said, really aren't that antagonistic about it. It's when things get like overly politicized or you start Mm -hmm. going, no, this is why you can't do what you want to do. That's when things get dangerous. But a lot of people, I would argue actually a majority of people kind of want to get involved when they hear about stuff like this, especially if it's not too much extra effort on their part. Yeah, and I think most people like nature. Yeah. They like to get out in nature. One thing the pandemic taught us was the value <laughs> of a nice place to go hike. And yeah. so if you can tie it to things they like, whether that's hiking or photography or you know fishing or whatever, um, I think you have a 
find some common ground and right. have a much better chance of convincing them of the importance of a particular species that occurs in the habitat that they love. For sure. And so from more of the scientific side of what you do and thinking about, you know, sort of how much we know about this plant, but how much we still have yet to learn, what do you think is needed from a very sort of practical application scientific side of things moving forward to truly understand, I don't know, <laughs> to, to understand what more could be done, I guess, to save uh-huh. this species or to, to do at least slow its decline? I mean, the, I think the, the key is going to be weevil control. Mm. The habitat loss that's occurred around the Great Lakes has happened, you know, and right. we're not going to get back dunes in the city of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little tiny one at Montrose beach, but right, aside right. from that, <laughs> but there are great big national parks all around Lake Michigan. Yeah. And those are great refugia. And if those parks are well-managed, there's plenty of habitat for this species. It's just, it's these weevils. Well, and climate change, I'll right, say climate right. change isn't um, helping it either. Particularly uh, droughty early summers are hard mm. on it. Um, the seedlings, you know, think about a tiny little seedling in open sand and it doesn't yeah. get any rain. It doesn't yeah. live. So uh, some of the effects of climate change, like summer drought are tough too. Yeah. I mean, I just think of how bad my feet feel when I try to walk <laughs> on open sand during the heat of yeah. the day. And now imagine <laughs> something trying to put a root down into that and not cook. Yeah. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. But that's, again, it's this conundrum between these species that love disturbance. Really, when they get what they want, they're tough as nails, can get through things that we could never hope to uh, as as individual humans. But you throw humans into the mix and suddenly things get messy. Um, yeah, and I'm hoping, you know, you're very plant-focused, but maybe there's an entomologist or someone that's, you know, controlling weevils in a different context that may yeah. hear this and go, bing, okay, we need to talk. And that's what I hope with sort of these, like getting out of this ivory tower and spreading this information out is you, you get people listening that might go, oh, wait a minute, I might have a solution here, or at least an idea that someone hasn't heard before. Right. And we have lots of sites where some of those solutions could be tested. So <laughs> we'd be happy to collaborate. But it's very refreshing <laughs> to hear this context of doing restoration, doing conservation work, but also generating data and doing science in the process. I mean, this is a model that people need to emulate time and time again, because as we've said multiple times in our conversation, if we wait, we're going to lose a lot more than if we just try. And I, I promise trying most of the time isn't going to be nearly as bad as doing nothing. <laughs> right. Right. Choosing to wait is... It's making a choice, and it's a choice that usually doesn't favor the plant or the plant community. So for someone that's been doing plant conservation work, I don't want to end this on a dismal note. Um, have you seen anything in your career that have, has given you more hope than, than most occurrences or something that really just kind of refreshes the tanks and makes you go, this is why I do what I do? Yeah, I mean, I think... The progress we've made on seed banking native plants has been quite remarkable hmm. in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, seed banking had been used for crops for a long time, um, but we really hadn't applied it in a systematic way to native plants, wild plants. Um, and now we are, um, not just in the U.S., um, but around the world. A lot of that work was pioneered by Royal Botanic Gardens Q 
who um, literally won the lottery um, <laughs> with Millennium Lottery funding. They they developed it, built their Millennium Seed Bank, and that project allowed them to catalyze seed collection all around the world. Wow. Um, so I, I think that's been super positive. Um, we're also making progress uh, with the species that don't typically bank well. Um, you mentioned recalcitrant species. Um, you know, how do you think about managing a living collection of something like a rare oak or a rare rhododendron um, or breadfruit uh, <laughs> when when you can't bank the seed and when they're big trees and you know a, a garden can't grow a thousand of them yeah. or two thousand of them. And I think the answer is going to be meta collections really treat treating our collections much like zoos treat their collections and managing them across institutions around the world and so we've been working with the folks at uh, species conservation toolkit initiative at the brookfield zoo who have developed all the software to decide what animal to mate with <laughs> with whom in order to preserve genetic diversity in zoo populations and we're now applying that to plants. Wow. So we have stud books for plants, <laughs> which, Who'd you know, it, yeah, who would have thought? Um, and it it's really exciting. I think it's going to transform how we manage living plant collections at Botanic Gardens. And so we're we're thrilled to be part of that. Yeah. Um, so I, seed banking always gives me hope. Awesome. Um, yeah. That's excellent. And I think it is kind of poetic when you think about what really got our species going on the track that we're on today. It's saving and sharing seeds among populations and what's going to save our butts (laughs) moving into a future of ecological destruction and hopefully repair is saving seeds and sharing them among (laughs) different institutions. Exactly. Going back to basics, but with technology being used for good, uh, you know, and, and, and scientific progress being what it is, we know a lot more. And, and like you said, we're developing new things all the time to make sure that this can be viable. That is a very hopeful message. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, um, you know, a lot of people call seed banks like doomsday vaults and, and I don't like that terminology. (laughs) I mean, to me, they're so hopeful. And I I don't think of seed banking as, you know, we're waiting for an apocalypse and we're going to stumble out and afterwards and plant a few plants and hope for the best. <laughs> right. It's it's a constant kind of cycle of use of these um, banked seeds to restore habitats and restore plant communities. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be a, an oopsie, we messed up, restart button. It can be preventative medicine, right? And that's, exactly. that's often the best medicine we have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Havens, this has been enlightening. And, and talking to people like you about dismal subjects like this that can be very sad uh, does give me hope because it shows the amount of work that's being done, the amount of passion that goes into it. But you know, for someone on the front lines of all of this to hear a message of hope well, dang, if you can feel hopeful, then the rest of us can feel pretty darn good, too. <laughs> Most days I'm quite optimistic. I have my days. Yeah, we all do. But, We're human after all. Right? Yeah. But uh, most days I am optimistic that we have the technology to save all these species. Uh, the place where we need a little help is the political will to right. do it. Right. So, and, and a little monetary incentive yeah, doesn't help well, either. Well, funding never hurt. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sure. 
But uh, for those interested and fired up about this and want to learn more about the work you're doing, your colleagues, and and just about Pitcher's Thistle in general, uh, where do you recommend they go looking? Uh, they can go to Chicago Botanic Gardens website. The, the science part of our website has a lot of that information. Um, and they can also contact me and I'm happy to hook them up with publications or, or other sources of information. Excellent. Well, I will save everyone the trouble, of course, by putting those links in the show notes. But Dr. Havens, thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much for the effort you put in each and every day. We really appreciate it. And so do the plants, I'm sure. <laughs> and thank you so much, because if we don't get the word out about it, <laughs> it's not going to, you know, we're never going to be successful. So, well, I'm always happy is- to talk to folks like you. So <laughs> that is, I'm happy to do my part there. <laughs> okay. Right. Nice meeting you. Yeah, Take nice care. meeting you. Hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, go plant conservation. Yeah, definitely. Cheers. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, that is it for this fantastic conversation. It is always important to find the silver lining and end on messages of hope, and I think Dr. Havens does that really well. So I thank her for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us and tell us about the plight of this amazing plant and what is being done to save it. Of course, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're there, consider picking up some stickers or some merch. You can also purchase my book. You can find that link in the show notes as well. And don't forget, we also have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash indefensiveplants is the best way to ensure this show has a future. Speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast, Paleo Fern. Paleo Fern went over and signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of the kickbacks you can get, including access to bonus episodes each month. So thank you to Paleo Fern and all of the patrons that support this show each and every week. I couldn't be doing it without them. But that is it for me this week. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.